Hi. Good morning. The elephant today is religion. Religion causes us to think all kinds of things and do all kinds of things and believe all kinds of things and act in certain ways. Religion oftentimes kind of narrows itself down into a specific question that we wrestle with, and that is this idea of being in or out. Are they in or out? Are we in or are we out? It's an important question, but it can also be one that um, severely sidetracks us as well. I experienced something last night for the first time. I, um, I was preparing my notes for this message, which, by the way, has been uh, a process for me over the last number of weeks. I'll explain a little bit more about that in a moment. But uh, I have wrestled deeply, 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 deeply with this subject. Um, I was at a roller derby match last night. In fact, it's not called a match. It's called a bout um, and so I, 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 this might have been a first. I, I was actually sitting in the stands of the roller derby bout with my sermon notes and Bible, <laughs> preparing for today's message, drinking a Pabst Blue Ribbon. Because <laughs> I figured if you're going to go to a roller derby bout, you're not getting the full meal deal unless you're drinking a Pabst Blue Ribbon. I can highly recommend the experience of going to a roller derby bout. I cannot vouch for the experience of the Pabst Blue Ribbon. (laughs) In fact, I think I would argue against it. (laughs) Now, there's a question. See, you could ask the question, why is he saying bad things about Pabst Blue Ribbon? Um, Do me a favor. We're going to walk through an exercise here for the next number of minutes. And here's how I want you to answer this question. I want you to answer the question whether the images you see on the screen you would consider to be in or out. I'm going to ask it a different way. When you think of how the bulk of Christianity, the bulk of Christians would answer the question of whether this person is in or out, how do you think Christians would answer that question? I think you know what I mean by in or out. If they are part of God's salvation plan or if they are far from God, if they have achieved kingdom in the afterlife, or if they are completely separated from God in the afterlife. Make sense? Let's go through some images. Here's the first one. Everybody know who that is? Martin Luther. Many say that he was the father of the Protestant Reformation. Incredible theologian. Awesome insights. Um, Gosh, just an inspiring, prolific writer. Um, some would put him on a pedestal of some of the you know, one of the greatest Christians of all time. In or out? In. Probably also one of the greatest anti-Semites that ever walked the earth. Still in? Just curious. Okay. Next one. Martin Luther King Jr. In or out? In. Gosh, yeah. Come on, MLK. Next one. Out. I think we all agree on that. Now, it may be important to note that Hitler based the existence of National Socialism on what we would call Christian claims. In or out? Okay, next. Pope Benedict. (laughs) Mixed reviews on Pope Benedict. 
Pope, uh, this Pope actually about 20 years ago rewrote the modern catechism for the Catholic Church. And uh, although he is fairly conservative in his Catholic views, has proposed some pretty incredible different stances on the Catholic Church. Um, probably most importantly, that one can achieve salvation outside of the Roman Church. Significant. In or out? Mother Teresa. In or out? In. Funny. Pope's in, Teresa, or Pope is out, Teresa's in. Same basic beliefs, different lives of service. Next one. Billy Graham. Okay, now see, now this is why we do this elephant series, right? So we're already starting to get some, maybe some disagreements and questions. Next one. Michael Jackson claimed to have prayed the prayer of salvation as a child. And I'm hearing a lot of out. Okay, next one. Rob Bell. Ooh. <laughs> About uh, six or seven years ago, I quoted, I quoted something from Rob Bell. Just quoted it because it was interesting to me. It fit into a, a teaching I was doing. And I was called an agent of Satan. Because I quoted Rob Bell. In or out? Next one. Everybody wants Tebow to be in, right? Next one. What do you think the religion of his day said about his being in or out? It's out. In his religion. Good. We say he's in. I would. There should be many of us in this room, and I see some body language of some of you, that are deeply disturbed by what we just did. I think we should be deeply disturbed by what we just did. We just determined someone's eternal salvation, a lot of it based on feeling, a lot of it based on opinion, a lot of it based on gossip, a lot of it based on the media. We are determining people's eternal salvation based on all kinds of things that maybe not be the main thing. Pray with me. Lord God, forgive us. Forgive us that we just did an exercise to make a point that um, that was hard. Forgive us, God, that we uh, often are people of religion and not people of relationship. Lord, as we uh, look into this difficult subject today, I pray that your truth would break through into us and those things that um, cause us to be distracted from your truth would be quickly forgotten. And yet, God, at the same time, inspire us to ask hard questions and to wrestle with these deep truths. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, I, I can't remember uh, a teaching that I've done in the last 20 years that has um, been more difficult for me than this particular subject. Um, I have had sleepless nights. I have looked at scripture and read them in um, interesting ways, in new ways. I have had wild dreams almost every night for the last two weeks. Um, sometimes when people prepare to, to give a message on scripture or on these large topics, um, 
you can be drawn into them because of a number of things. You can be drawn in because the subject matter actually is speaking more to you than it's supposed to speak to the audience. It could be because, in this case for me, I am so convicted by some of the things that I have held on to, some of the thinking that I have had, some of the thoughts and feelings I've had, um, that, that it's been nothing short of disturbing. Uh, I think that has happened. Um, this is a subject, when we talk about religion and decision and salvation, that is a difficult subject. This is a subject that causes a lot of us to squirm in our seats, and well, it should. Um, this is why that they've given me this text, because I'll be gone in a month. <laughs> and if you don't like what I say, you can say, man, now we're glad that guy's out of here. Um, my, my hope is, though, that, that I don't say things that would, that would create division, but that we would come to things that would ultimately create unity for us. And yet, there is an elephant in the room, and it is religion, and it is our judgment, and it is our need to be in control, and it's all kinds of things, and we're going to discuss that a little bit today. The, the Bible says an awful lot about heaven and hell. And we could go into a long discussion with lots of scriptures that talk about the nature of heaven or the nature of hell. Um, we believe as Christians that there is a differentiated afterlife, that, that there is a heaven and a hell, that we have the opportunity to engage in lifelong eternal relationship with the Father or to be eternally separated from the Father. We believe in those things. Um, there are a ton of scriptures that talk about paradise and a number of scriptures that talk about that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sheol is sometimes referred to. We could have arguments over whether that actually means a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem or whether that is a real physical place. Those are all kinds of things that we could do with this time this morning, but we're not going to. We're going to look at this idea of religion and what it has meant to us as a people. See, asking if somebody is in or out is a religious question. Religious people want to ask that question, and religious people want to answer that question. Now, here's the struggle, one of them, of the many struggles that I encountered as I prepared for this. I claim not to be a religious person. I do not want to be a religious person. You see, to me, religion implies a set of rules or laws that exist for a group for there to be moral conformity. But how frequently do we in the Christian tribe ask each other this question about somebody else? The question is, well, are they saved? How often do we ask that question? I have asked that question. I have been asked that question several times, even in the last week. Now, if we were to answer that question, I think with humility and honesty... We would say to whoever is inquiring about the third party, well, you have to ask them if they have life through Jesus. Do they really know him? Do they really trust him? Do they truly obey him? And yet I admit my own arrogance that I have actually answered that question. I've answered that question. Oh, is so-and-so saved? Yes, they're saved. Or... No, they're not saved. When we answer that question, we are no less than assuming a role that only God can play. We're assuming a role that only 
God can play. When I was 15 years old, 1979 was the year I had a friend named Steve. I had grown up in a Christian home uh, that had its own set of religious rituals that we engaged in. And I became convinced through this other group that I started attending that the way of my family was horribly wrong and the way of my new group was horribly right. The, the way of my new group was um, very much into the born-again movement, which said that you had to do very specific things and say very specific prayers and have very specific things happen to you after reciting those prayers in order to assure your salvation in heaven. So this guy, Steve, who was a year older than I, um, Steve was, was one of these guys everybody kind of wanted to be like. He was a gymnast, so he was built really well. And this was 1979. He was, he was the male equivalent of Farrah Fawcett. <laughs> he had the feathered hair going back. He had the mustache. It was like, wow, Steve, you're cool, dude. So Steve comes over to my house for dinner. My father is a litigating attorney. I have never had an independent thought in my life that wasn't cross-examined at the dinner table. My father knows the scriptures better than I will ever hope to know the scriptures. My father knows Christian history better than I will ever hope to know Christian history. My father understands and knows theology. He intimidates me, the depth of this man's knowledge. And Steve and I sat at that table, and I said to my father these words, You are not a Christian. Poor Steve. He got grilled. My father cross-examined us, and he was bringing up stuff we had never heard about. I mean, Christian history and the Reformation and what it meant and the status of the church and the creeds of the church. Well, in my tradition, we recite the creeds every week, and this is what the creeds say. Are you telling me that because I recite this creed and have this belief but didn't say this specific prayer that I'm eternally damned to hell? Yeah. That's what we're saying. How arrogant. How arrogant were we at that age to make those assumptions? And yet, our religion is what was causing us to take these strong stances. And it was our opinion that caused us to feel this way. I've since had some very interesting conversations with my father. Um, I still don't really know what he believes, but that, that's not yeah, I, I often quote um, dead white guys uh, when I speak. I'm going to quote uh, an alive white guy. This is what Bono says. Great theologian. I often wonder if religion is the enemy of God. It's almost like religion is what happens when the spirit has left the building. You know, religion, when we look at the, the biblical use of the word religion, the New Testament... Um, there are dozens and dozens of places where the word religion is used. There is only one circumstance in the entire New Testament. It's used by James, and some would say that he used it in a way um, that actually was a, a little bit um, controversial. But there's only one occurrence in the book of James where the word religion is used in a positive light. In every single other instance in the New Testament, when we see the word religion, there's a fine Greek word for the word religion. It is used in a negative light. We see Jesus talking against religion all the time. I think Bono is on to something. And yet, even with all of that, I think we still find ourselves trapped within 
religion. Now, quick review. On the first week that we talked about this elephant series, Russ talked about three ways that we would be looking at some of these concepts. We have dogma, doctrine, and opinion. Dogma, doctrine, opinion. Dogma is sometimes a word that gets used in a negative context. We're using it in a fairly positive context here. Dogma simply is the undisputed accepted beliefs, the undisputed center, the core orthodoxy. If you were to take the creeds of the Christian church, that would be our dogma, the core truths. Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the center. I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. That is the dogma of our belief. Doctrine is interpreting the dogma. With doctrine, there can be a diversity of views, all kinds of them, that help us to explain or understand the dogma. Then we have opinions. Opinions are certainly not official. Our opinions are sometimes the strongest part of what we carry. Sometimes our opinions are the furthest thing from the center, in our case, Jesus. Often our opinions are what lead us emotionally, so much so that when somebody else challenges our opinions, we tend to come in with an arms-up posture, right? We, we really like to dig our heels in. Steve and I were trying to come at my father, man, full guns blaring, arms up, let's duke it out, you're wrong, we're right, get yourself saved, Now, where do we start in a discussion like this? Where I like to start is where we agree. What do we agree upon? I would hope that we can agree that Jesus Christ is the center. Jesus Christ is the undisputed center. Jesus Christ, for us as Christians, represents life. Now, in the religion in-out discussion... The only dogma is this, religion in out question. The only dogma is that the life, the death, and resurrection resurrection of Jesus is meaningless without the dogma of a differentiated afterlife. A differentiated afterlife simply means that we believe when you die, there are options. (laughs) Based on what you believe and who you follow, who you obey, There are options. There are many religions that have a differentiated afterlife. The caste system, Hinduism, reincarnation is also another form of a differentiated afterlife. As Christians, we believe that there are two possible roads. And it's really one road. It's just going in different directions. You're either going toward God or you're going away from God. The dogma in this in-out discussion is that there is a differentiated afterlife. Christ is the Messiah. We are in need of a Savior. Jesus came to save us from something. What is it? What did Jesus come to save us from? Now, we can't dispute the frequent reference in the New Testament to both paradise and separation from God in the afterlife. And this is great news for us. This is the hope that we have in our Lord, that we would have eternal life with him. But it also creates all kinds of problems for us. Now, the doctrine in this in-out religion discussion, 
the various doctrinal positions that one can have would be things that talk about election or predestination or free will or a human response or eternal security. The difference between a Calvinist view on one hand and an Arminian view on the other. There are all kinds of doctrinal statements and differences that come into this discussion. They have created a vast array of different denominations within the Christian church. And we could have all kinds of discussion on what you believe doctrinally about this topic. My opinion is, if you were to ask Paul in the flesh, okay, Paul, so what is it? You wrote about predestination, free, or predestination and free will. Is it predestination or free will? And Paul would answer, yes. That's my opinion. It's a mystery. It stinks. It would be great if it were black and white. That's my opinion. That's doctrine. Now, we also have opinion on this subject, The opinion on this subject is who's in, who's out? How do they get in? How do they get out? What do they get when they get there? I'm in a condo and you're in an estate. Why is that? When do we get there? What is the timing? End times theology. Where do we actually go? These are all things that make up our opinion. I think that we have been for a very long time focusing on the wrong question. We've been asking the wrong question. We've tended to ask this question, where are you going when you die? You see, when we ask that question, that question only calls for an answer that provides a death benefit. It limits it to only a death benefit. It reduces our faith to an unseen future rather than a real present. Now, we believe as Christ followers that it is a real future, and of course it is, but when we start focusing on that, It takes our eyes off of Jesus. Bruxy Cavey is an author. He's a pastor. He uh, preaches and teaches at a church in Canada called The Meeting House. Um, He's a Brethren of Christ guy, an Anabaptist, although he has a, a varied theological background. He wrote this book called The End of Religion, Encountering the Subversive Spirituality of Jesus. And it is a great read. I would highly recommend this for anybody talking about this particular subject. You don't have to agree with all of what Bruxy has to say. You can disagree with all of it, but it's a great way to start answering or asking some of the questions. Now, here's what Bruxy pointed out in this book. There is actually a couple of, uh, of uh, graphics here that he used in this book. The first one is what he calls a boundary marker's definition of identity. And this is what religion is, Right? Religion is that boundary marker that defines our identity. So you see that circle around the outside. That is a very strong perimeter. It has no ability to be penetrated, as you can see. And this circle defines the identity of the group within the circle. Now, we see that there is Christ at the center of this, but it's got a very strong perimeter. And here you've got these people on the outside that are clearly not on the inside. In this circumstance, religion is defining someone's identity. They are defined, in this case, unfortunately, oftentimes more by this perimeter than they are by the center. This is what religion does. This is what religion says. This is very important for religious people. Now, the other option that Bruxy gives here is having a heart, attitude, and orientation having define our identity. And actually, in this picture, I would prefer if this circle were actually gone, because really, the only options we have are either moving toward Christ, the center, 
are moving away from Christ, the center. There's another author named Alan Hirsch who wrote a book called The Forgotten Ways. He talks about this idea of a bounded set and a centered set. A bounded set would be one that has a strong fence around it, like the first one we saw. A centered set would be that everything is based on the gravity hole of the center, in our case, Jesus Christ. He actually did some study of um, agriculture in Australia. In the United States, we have cattle, and what do we do with cattle? How do we keep track of our cattle? What do we do? We build a fence. You know what they do in the outback in Australia? They put in a watering hole. There's no fence. There doesn't need to be a fence. Why? Because they have to have water. So what do they do? They are always going to come to the center where the watering hole is. In America, we build fences. In Australia, they build water holes. I love that thought. In religion, we build fences. It keeps people in and it keeps people out. What we should be doing is putting in watering holes. Of course, that watering hole is Jesus. That should be the center of what we're about. We're either moving away from God or we're moving toward God. This is what Bruxy writes. Follow along. It's a fairly long quote. When faith becomes religion, people on the inside of the group begin to focus their attention on the perimeter patrolling the boundaries to regulate who is in and who is out. They develop visible boundary markers, demarcations of holiness, which become important signs of group identity. Jesus challenged this specific phenomenon in the religion of his day. The question is, and here I am addressing people who claim to follow Jesus, are we willing to pick up that challenge today and to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as the only source and goal of our faith? rather than on the multiple lines of religious demarcation that define our group identity. In other words, are we willing to focus on our center instead of our perimeter? Groups that focus on their center may have less clear perimeters, but they will not be threatened by this perimeter ambiguity because they are clear about the core of their identity. This, in turn, leads to greater compassion and acceptance. Without having to believe utopian ideas like all people go to heaven when they die, or sin is illusion, or all religions are equally valid, Jesus' followers will not try to separate who is saved and who is not, who is in and who is out. Policing the perimeter is what religious people do. But not Christ followers. At least not Christ followers who really want to follow Christ. I love that quote. And yet, I'll be honest, some of it raises my ire. Why? What about that quote makes me uncomfortable? Admittedly, it's because I oftentimes want to be right more than I want to be in relationship. Religious people like to be right. I like having a group ethos. I think identity is important. See, we do hold some very significant and important beliefs in our Christian tribe, like a Trinitarian theology. And oftentimes, it's much easier for me to point to the wineskin than to the wine inside, or even better yet, to the wine maker. The important word in this quote for me is the word focus. When we focus on the boundary, we focus more on the behavior or beliefs of others than on the grace of Jesus. And we tend to judge those beliefs and behaviors as indicators of others' fitness to belong into our group, or even arrogantly to sometimes determine one's salvation. We turn relationship into law. 
Martin Luther wrote this in his commentary on Galatians in the introduction. He wrote, But Christ, according to his true definition, is no lawgiver, but a forgiver of sins and a savior. And yet, my confession is that I like to turn Jesus into a lawgiver. It's hard. I like the gate sometimes. I like the fence. I like the black and white. But I don't want to be called religious. This is what Bruxy writes later on in his book. When sinful, broken, hurting people are pleasantly surprised at how accepting we are, and religious people are outraged at how accepting we are, there is good chance we're starting to live like Jesus. We will have finally learned the difference between acceptance and agreement, a lesson religious people find hard to grasp. How tightly are we holding on to religious ideas? I think we need to ask that question seriously of ourselves. I know I do. I know that I've been wrestling deeply with this um, for the last number of weeks. Now, in talking about this, we could have thrown all kinds of scriptures out and discuss and even debate the role of religion in our faith and in our thinking. Um, Philippians 3 is a great place to go when we talk about this. Paul says um, that in all of his religious credentials, that all of them, he says in Philippians 3, are like dung, he says. The Greek word is skubalon. I love that word, skubalon, which means excrement or dung or rubbish or garbage. Paul says that all of that religious stuff that he had, all of those rules, all of those are like garbage or like dung in comparison to the life I have in and through Jesus. Paul reminds us there that it's all about the center, Jesus, and not at all about the boundaries. I encourage you to read Philippians 3. But what I didn't want to do with this was come up with all kinds of scriptures that would help me support any opinions I have. In fact, part of this exercise we're in with elephants is to ask you the question back. What scriptures do you point to? When you think of how we view religion, what scriptures do you point to when you think of the in-out question? What scriptures do you point to? There are all kinds of them. How do you use them when you point to them? I find oftentimes for myself, um, I've just been so convicted the last few weeks, I oftentimes use scripture like a weapon. I can use scripture like a weapon to make my point even if I sometimes want to bend the meaning to make me right. I think religious people do that. There's one, um, there's one passage that really nailed me as I studied this topic, and we're going to look at it here this morning briefly. This caused some serious self-reflection for me. Tim Keller uh, teaches on this and has referenced this passage in a number of his books and, and some of his teaching. It's uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Now, I know we looked at Matthew earlier in the year, and we had some discussions on this subject, but we're going to look at it again today. Now, Jesus says some pretty pointed and shocking things earlier in Matthew's gospel. And in fact, in chapter 7, he says some things in the form of a warning, like Jesus saying, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. That's a challenging, sobering scripture. 
Here's what Jesus says a little bit later in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now remember the idea of the series is to inspire questions and spark some discussions in your group. So I'm asking for just... I'm asking for a little bit of of, um, grace because I'm going to help you ask some hard questions. Now, you hear this scripture, or maybe some of you are saying, wait wait a minute, you were just quoting that Bruxy KV dude and and the Hirsch dude, and it kind of sounded like all that you were talking about was that we can't judge. In fact, it was even feeling like you were getting close to saying that the gates of heaven might even be open wider than we have thought. And now you're talking about this exclusivity? Wait a minute. What are you getting at here? We have to go back to the dogma. The dogma on this topic is that there is a differentiated afterlife. And here is what I hear Jesus saying. By the way, when you hear somebody say, this is what I hear Jesus saying, that's an opinion. Okay, that's not dogma. My opinion happens to be right, but that's not. (laughs) That was a joke. Disagree with me. That's what the series is about. Here's what I hear Jesus saying. People put a lot of weight on their religion. In fact, these people who say this to Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many great works in your name, all of them are putting all of their hope on the boundaries and the perimeter. They're putting their hope on their religion. Now, here's what I find incredibly challenging about this particular scripture. And that is that these people who are putting all of their hope on the boundary share some things in common with me. They share some things in common with all of us who would call ourselves Christians. There are three things in particular that they share in common with those that we would call Christian. The first is that they have the right orthodoxy. They believe correctly. They refer to Jesus not just as Lord, but they say, Lord, Lord. They are identifying Jesus as Lord. They are calling him by his proper name. They are saying, we believe In you, they have the right belief. They have the right orthodoxy. Well, I think I do too. Number two, they are emotionally involved. They are pleading with Jesus. They are convinced of their rightness. They are convinced that their deeds and their boundaries are good enough for them to receive from Jesus what they're after. They are emotionally involved. I am emotionally involved in my faith. I hope we all are emotionally involved in our faith. And then lastly, they are active in service. Perhaps they're more active in service than I am. They prophesy in his name. They cast out demons in his name. They've done many mighty works in his name. And yet Jesus says, I never knew you. What is the difference? Here's what I've learned from this passage. Absence of traits can definitely demonstrate that we are not a Christian. Absence of traits can demonstrate that we are not a Christian. If we have the absence of the trait that identifies Jesus as Lord, then clearly we are not a Christian. But the presence of traits doesn't guarantee that you are. 
Because there is the presence of traits in these people in this Matthew passage. There's one obvious thing missing. Jesus says it. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, but who? The one who does the will of my Father. So one of the key differences is that those who are called into eternal life with Jesus have surrendered to the will of the Father. They have surrendered their own will to the will of the Father. And this is one of the reasons why we love religion so much. Why? Because it puts us in control. We need to surrender our will and our control, but we love to have control. We want to decide our own method of spiritual rescue. We want to be in charge of everything. And when we do that, we actually want to be God. And that is what religion does. It wants us to be in control. When we surrender, we put our need for control aside and rest in the will of the Father. And this is hard to do. So this passage is saying that it's more than the right orthodoxy. It's more than an emotional involvement in service or works. It's trusting Him, God. It's knowing Him. It's obeying Him. It is nothing short of surrendering to Him. Here is the question that I have forced myself to ask and to answer. When I like to have my religion, how can I be happy and still have control over my life? How can I be happy and still have control over my life? You all heard of W.C. Fields? W.C. Fields was a, an actor in the silent era and then later in, in talkie movies. He was a, a boisterous, funny guy. He, he starred in films with uh, Mae West. And uh, the story goes that he was in the hospital on his deathbed, and a friend of his came in and saw W.C. Fields reading a Bible. And the friend was shocked, and he said, W.C., what are you doing? Why are you reading a Bible? And he said, I'm looking for loopholes. How can I be happy and still have control over my life? I wish that there was an answer for that that was satisfactory to me having control. Here's what I've learned. I can't. How can you be happy and still have control over your life? You can't. We are called to surrender to God. We are called to look to the center. There's a not-so-obvious thing that is present in these verses in Matthew, and that is that those who do the will of the Father have a complete grasp on the grace of God. They grasp the grace of God. They understand that it is nothing that they can do that gets to their salvation. These people, Lord, Lord, we did all of these great things. I never knew you. You are depending on your works. These people who have done the will of God are saying, there is nothing we can do. We can point to the center. We can surrender to you. And that is by grace that we are saved. I think of the thief on the cross who had the greatest faith of anybody I can possibly imagine, who turns to the guy next to him who by all standards of the time would have been viewed as one cursed 
We see that by the prophets of the Old Testament. He who hangs on a tree is one who is cursed. Jesus is on a cross. He is cursed. And yet this thief on the cross turns to him and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The guy is dying. Most would say that he has failed. There's nothing that thief can do except completely surrender to him. And what does Jesus say? I will remember you this day when I come into my kingdom. We must grasp the grace of God. And so, we come into communion today. We come into communion with some hard questions and hard teaching and being confronted with our own religion, being confronted with our own judgment, being confronted with our need for our own control. And we come to the communion table and again we surrender to the center. We surrender to Jesus. John Calvin wrote this in 1541 about the Lord's Supper. I share it as we go into our time of communion. For whoever approaches this holy sacrament with contempt or indifference, not caring much about following where our Lord calls him, perversely misuses it and thus contaminates it. If we wish, then, to communicate worthily in the sacred supper of our Lord, we must hold in form and heart confidence that the Lord Jesus is our sole righteousness, life, and salvation, receiving and accepting the promises which are given us by him as certain and assured, renouncing, on the other hand, all other confidence in order that, just trusting ourselves and all other creatures, we may rest fully in him and content ourselves with his grace alone. So may you come to the table, and may you confess your religiosity, And may we confess our control and our judgment. And may we tear down the perimeter, stop policing the boundaries, and point to the center, Jesus, our Lord. Through him, we have life. Let's pray.